Hey, what's up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, and it's the Centered from Reality podcast. I hope, I don't know, your Monday's going well. Never my favorite day of the week, but here we are. Anyways, you are back to see my beautiful face here. Video is back. I know I keep saying I'm going to keep it going forever. Sometimes it's here, sometimes it's not. So for forgive me, forgive me for sure. But it's nice to be back at camera, sitting here in Reno, Nevada. It has been a doozy of a weekend, lots of snow, very cold. We had enough snow that I was out skiing on the streets here. I did like a 15K yesterday, all on the golf course and on the roads, just mainly because I could and I wanted to get out. And it's not often that you can say you were skiing in Reno, Nevada. Obviously, that happens in like up in the mountains in Tahoe, but usually rain, usually Reno's in a rain shadow and this was kind of different, so I had to do it. Anyways, I'm feeling kind of like I want some tropics today. That's why I'm wearing this floral shirt. So forgive the floral shirt with the suit, but sometimes you got to be tropical and festive. And so, yeah, here we are. So anyways, I figure we should start with something a little bit lighter before we dive into all these depressing foreign policy affairs, because, you know, we got to kind of laugh at something. And I wanted to start by talking about CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference, which ironically took place in Maryland on March 4th, 2023. First off, I'll just say that CPAC used to be kind of this event that all types of Republicans would go. You had the Libertarian Republicans, the Establishment Tax Cut Republicans, the Populists, the Evangelicals. It was kind of like, I think it was Charlie Sykes on The Bulwark who said CPAC used to be kind of this Star Wars bar scene where all the kooks and the chaos were all just like coming together. And now CPAC is really TPAC, the Trump Political Action Conference. And the reason I say that, I think it started back in, what, 2019 or 2020 when they had these giant gold statues of Trump at it. I don't know about you guys, but that doesn't really seem to me like just a random fun conference for all types. No, this is like a Trump sycophancy. And of course, it's led by Matt Schlapp, who has his own controversies, which we've already talked about. But he's become just a brown noser to Donald Trump. And all you have to do is look at some of the speakers at this thing. You had, you had like Matt Gates, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Mike Lindell, Carrie Lake, Steve Bannon. Like these are not your typical like rhino Republicans or whatever you want to call them. This is like the MAGA, America First, populist movement. And I think, I think the way to sum it up best would be when Trump uh, gave a speech during CPAC, which... He dominated that, of course, because it does seem like Trump is back. And he said people are tired of rhinos. They're tired of globalists. They want to see America first. That's what they want. It's not too complicated. He said the Republican Party was ruled by freaks, neocons, open border zealots and fools. We're never going back to the Paul Ryan, Karl Rove or Jeb Bush thing. Then he attacked Republicans who wanted to raise Social Security retirement age. He also vowed to run even if he's indicted. And... Look, he talked about law and order. He, he talked about freedom cities. He wants to build freedom cities, I guess, which are kind of a response to sanctuary cities. Interesting stuff, for sure. I think also the interesting thing is that he endorsed mail-in ballots, early voting, and ballot harvesting, which is kind of interesting. And then he also highlighted Carrie Lake's failed gubernatorial bid, he talked about how he will move heaven and earth basically to secure our elections. Kind of a lot of ranting. It wasn't very busy. I should also add that I couldn't even find CPAC on any channels or TPAC on any channels. 
It took me diving deep into the internet to find any coverage of it. But what I will say is that while Trump and Carrie Lake and Steve Bannon were there, what's more telling is who wasn't at CPAC. You didn't have some of the other people that could be important in the 2024 race. You, you didn't have Mike Pence there, who, I mean, we, we all know why he wasn't there. Some of the people there might have wanted to hang him. But we also didn't have Ron DeSantis, who clearly has this I have better things to do type of attitude. It just seems like I, I think it was smart for some of them to sit it out because then they did this straw poll and Trump dominated in it. Trump overwhelmingly won the annual straw poll. He received 62% of the vote, which was actually down, by the way, from CPAC in Texas, where they brought Victor Orban there, where he won uh, 69% of the vote. But it was actually kind of impressive that, you know, he dominated. Ron DeSantis came in second at this CPAC straw poll with 20% of the vote. And Nikki Haley got like 3%. So nothing, nothing too great there by any means. But the thing is, is like, I don't think there's any importance to this straw poll. Because like I said, this is not CPAC anymore. This is TPAC. And of course, everyone there is a MAGA person. They're a Trump person. They're not DeSantis. And Rich Lowry wrote an interesting article. I believe it was in Politico. And Rich Lowry's definitely, definitely a DeSantis guy. Rich Lowry said, like, he sounds worried in it because he, he wants DeSantis to be the nominee. But he's like, DeSantis is trying to be Trump light. And he's like, what's the point of voting for DeSantis when you can just have the whole thing with Trump? And I think that is DeSantis's problem, especially at a CPAC, where everyone just wants the real thing. It's like, why get synthetic drugs when you could have the real thing, I guess? And in this case, Trump is the real deal. And DeSantis hasn't been able to really differentiate himself too much from Trump. And actually, he's less likable and seems almost more mean than Trump. And I think because of this, a lot of people are going, you know, I'd rather just have the real deal. And we see that at CPAC. So to me, the jury's kind of out whether DeSantis should have gone to CPAC or if he should have just stayed away. But either way, I think what this shows me, even though it's CPAC and not some big event, is that Trump is still the front runner. He still runs the GOP. And it is troubling to me that it doesn't look like any sane person is going to be able to really come out. And I should also note in that straw poll, they also asked participants about their top picks for vice president. And actually, Carrie Lake beat out Ron DeSantis, which again, I think tells you about what CPAC is about, right? She, uh, she got, let me see here. She came in first for vice president with 19.6% of the straw poll. DeSantis came in second at 14%. So again, what that tells me here is that these people don't want establishment types. Even if Ron DeSantis is kind of an asshole, they don't want that type of person. They want the Carrie Lakes. And the more I think about this, I think if Trump ends up being the nominee, he either picks like a Carrie Lake or a Marjorie Taylor Greene. I, I truly do believe that because him and DeSantis have burned bridges. They are not going to be friends anymore. And the base, the CPAC base wants it. And a lot of them are always Trumpers. They will not go to anyone else. And it seems like a lot of them vote. And so I don't think CPAC is anything too notable other than Trump is still the standard of the party. So we'll move on. But what a joke CPAC is, is all I can say. And as much of a joke it is, we have to take some of this seriously because, hey, it's the future. Moving on, I will just add as well that there was another train derailment in Ohio by Norfolk Southern. 
<laughs> so talk about deja vu. We're literally about a month away from this tragic disaster one, and Norfolk Southern has another train issue. NPR noted in an article here, a, Norf a Norfolk Southern train derailed Saturday evening in Springfield, Ohio, sending 28 cars sliding diagonally across the tracks, but injuring no one, according to several state and local agencies. The article later into it talks about how officials stressed that the 212-car train that derailed this weekend was not carrying toxic materials and does not pose a threat to the community. And both the Clark County Emergency Management Agency and the Ohio, uh, the, the Ohio Environmental Protection Agency examined the site and did deem it safe. So they say there's no risk to the public. And that's, <laughs> of course, according to a Norfolk Southern spokesman. So... Again, I'm glad there's no toxic chemicals, according to reports. But the problem here is, is that you have the person telling the community this is a Norfolk spokesman. Also, after all the failures in what happened in East Palestine, who is going to believe them here? There's been, it's, it was so chaotic a month ago, and there was so much distrust that it created that I just wonder if people are actually going to believe any of this stuff anymore. But anyways, Norfolk Southern clearly is a problem. They're trying to maximize profits without being safe a 212 car train without with like two employees monitoring it not gonna work and i think the transportation department needs to come down on this more and i think at least the biden administration could look into new or reformed regulations on this because you're not gonna be able to stop the thousands that have already happened a year of train derailments but we can move forward here so we don't just keep seeing this in the news because it's clearly becoming more of a pressing issue than i think a lot of people expected and it's just not something you want to see, especially it's like same state, same company. It's just an awful look. Anyways, first I wanted to get into some updates on the war in Ukraine. And basically I want to split the rest of this podcast into two segments. First off, it looks like Russia is both surrounding Bakhmut, which is a mining town in Ukraine, but it's also running out of weapons and could see issues. So that's kind of fascinating to me. And then second, I want to talk about the Wagner Group's influence in Bakhmut and then talk about why I think there could be actually some serious issues with Yegevny Prigozhin, who is the head of the Wagner Group and is, is a Russian oligarch who I think could challenge Putin. I talked about him a little bit. He's been an influential figure in kind of this shadow side of the Russian economy involving misinformation, propaganda, and also running a mercenary group. But anyways, The Economist has an article from today that discusses how even though the intense fighting in Bakhmut is continuing, it's not looking as good for the Russian military as some thought. NBC News reports here in quotes, over the weekend, Russian troops continued to advance through brutal close quarters fighting around the city of Bakhmut in eastern Ukraine, despite a lack of ammunition hindering their progress. The article continues in quotes, noting that Bakhmut is currently surrounded on three sides after months of bombardment that has laid much of the mining city to waste. The, the defensive stand has become a symbol of Ukrainian resistance to Russians' invasion. The article also writes, Bakhmut holds is a rallying cry heard around the country, and President Vladimir Zelensky's nightly videos address the nation talking about this. The article also writes, Ukrainian positions in the east have been worn down by an intensified Russian assault that has seen a mix of ex-convict Wagner fighters and newly mobilized military reservists who've been thrown into waves of attacks. 
I, I think the whole phenomenon, too, of the Wagner group using ex-convicts is very fascinating. Troubling, because you wonder what happens once this conflict slows down. But we're not going to be able to speculate and address that in today's episode. But the Wagner group has really filled holes in the Russian defense failures. And we'll get into more of that later, but I think it's kind of fascinating when you look at how effective the Wagner group has been, and they've even become somewhat of a propaganda movement in Russia as well. I should also note, though, that the British Ministry of Defense has said Saturday, in quotes, in late February, Russian reservists were ordered to attack a Ukrainian position with firearms and shovels. It continues, the shovels are likely the same ones used to dig trenches with used to dig, sorry, used to dig trenches, which had been used on the front line by Russian forces since the days of the czars. And I don't totally understand it, but apparently the use of the shovel is some kind of pride on the battlefield thing that's been around during other Russian conflicts throughout the last 100 or 200 years. But this just sounds brutally violent, sounds atrocious. I can't even imagine what it's like on the ground. But whenever you read a headline talking about shovels are being used in the trenches to fight, they dig the trenches with these shovels and then they're killing people with these shovels. I mean, it's just, just sounds like a nightmare. And I've seen photos of the area and it is looking more like color version photos of like a World War trench, like a World War I trench warfare system than anything modern. And I was talking with a friend about this in the car a few months ago and I think he kind of brought this up then and it's all starting to really click now. Like he was talking about how, you know, these conflicts in the early days start out with modern technology, precision attacks, but once these forms of weapons are depleted, these conflicts really do decline and they go back to the primordial nature of just kind of trench warfare, violent, brutish force. And that's kind of what we're seeing here in places like Bakhmut. And I should also note that the Wagner Group, which I have talked about extensively, is really running the table here. And it's kind of interesting to see what this will do, I guess, for Prigozhin's propaganda as head of the Wagner Group. But anyways, moving on, I have seen that Ukrainian military leaders just don't want to withdraw from the city because this is that symbol of resistance. And the American side, at least, is kind of downplaying the importance of Russia taking this and also wondering if Russia could even take this. And they say if they do, it's really not a big deal. And what I mean here is that Lloyd Austin, America's defense secretary, said in an Economist article that a potential uh, Ukrainian withdrawal could be a mere repositioning and not a setback. Could be good news. Again, good news doesn't really come to mind when you look, when you look into what's really happening on the ground. But to go even further, where there are signs of some sort of tension happening here, Yevgeny Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner Group, has warned that a lack of ammunition could lead to a collapse of Russia's front line. Obviously, when you're using shovels, that definitely comes to mind. And he added on Telegraph over the weekend, in quotes, the situation will not be sweet for all military formations protecting Russian interests. And he separately wrote, in quotes here, ammunition that had been promised by Moscow in February had not arrived. He added that he wasn't sure whether this delay was caused by ordinary bureaucracy or a betrayal. And... To me, these comments are actually kind of fascinating and maybe can give us a glimpse into the internal breakdowns in the Kremlin or the military failures. When he says it's either being caused by ordinary bureaucracy or a betrayal, I would probably say it's the bureaucratic breakdown. The Kremlin, I don't think, was completely prepared for what's been happening in, in, in Ukraine. 
I don't know if it's a betrayal, but this these youths, like these words that Prigozhin are using, calling this a betrayal, really show that we are seeing a divide inside of Russia and maybe growing criticism of Putin's approach to the war in Ukraine. And now just remember when I say there's criticism of Putin's approach to the war in Ukraine. It's less people criticizing him for the invasion and saying we need to like get out of here and leave Ukraine alone. It's more people saying like he's not doing enough. And Prigozhin is definitely on that side saying like, yo, Putin is not doing enough here. And if I was in power, we would have a much hard, much more hard handed approach to what we're doing here. And I think this is more just how inept the Russian military is at getting arms to its front lines. But either way, one could argue that things are not looking good on the front lines, even though this giant offensive has started. There's a lot of bloodshed, a lot of loss, and resources are getting low. Again, that's why I think China's peace plan or appeasement plan, whatever you want to call it, wouldn't be bad for Russia so they could have time to restock and replenish. Now, I actually want to talk about Prigozhin in a moment here, more in detail and kind of why these dynamics are fascinating to me. But before we move on, I should also note that warfare and logistics aside, um, Bakhmut has been described as just an utter hellscape and just sounds like a truly depressing and tragic matter there. Uh, the Economist notes here in quotes, previously a mining community of around 80,000 people, Bakhmut now has only a few thousand civilians remaining in it and its surrounding towns, mostly elderly and those unwilling or unable to leave. And the city, according to drone footage, is just completely leveled. Many of the streets are just dust. And like the troubling thing here to me is that a lot of these cities are really starting to look like exactly what happened in places like Syria over the last decade, Chechnya before then. Like they're pretty much doing the same thing. They're not trying to save anything, trying to make any agreements or discussions here. It's all about just kind of an absolute destruction. And it's, it's really not very heartwarming to see. Moving on, though, I do want to actually focus on Yevgeny Prigozhin. Without taking too much of a deep dive into his background, because there is a lot, I think the main things to know are that he's a Russian oligarch, former criminal, has his tentacles or arms, whatever you want to say, in a lot of different sectors and a lot of different like kind of dangerous quasi-government sectors. He's also a close confidant of Vladimir Putin, but at the same time, I, I've heard that he's not ever been like directly in the same circles as Vladimir Putin, but he's always been someone that him and Putin have, have had kind of a business slash quasi-strategic relationship where they both have kind of benefited off of each other's power. But things are changing, which we'll get into that in a moment. But the interesting part of, <laughs> of Prigozhin's background is that he's called Putin's chef because he owns restaurants and catering companies that provide services for the Kremlin. And the interesting thing too about him is that he, like I said, he has his hands in a lot of corrupt and violent institutions. But the interesting thing is, is that if you asked him two years ago, if he created the Wagner Group, or if he was involved in Russian disinformation in the United States, he would have said no. But since the invasion, he's just pretty much admitted to all the shit he's doing. And there's a lot. So for example, he long denied his role in Russian interference in the 2016 elections and the 2020 elections. However, in November of last year, he admitted it 
and said he would continue doing this, basically. Also, the interesting thing is, is that he actually has admitted that he was the founder and longtime manager of the Internet Research Agency. If that name sounds familiar to you, that's because this is the notorious Russian agency that was accused of putting up these troll farms and other propagandist operations to basically sow discord in the United States around our elections, politics, media. It was basically that fire hose of falsehood, right? Flooding the system with so much shit that no one knows what to believe anymore. And the IRA or the Internet Research Agency was key in this. And Prigozhin was a key player in this industry. And you, you hear so many reports about what this agency did, and they still are active from what I've understand. But anyways, uh, he also denied for a long time being the founder of the Wagner Group. But now he just admits it. An article I was reading writes here in quotes, after years of denying his links to Wagner, he eventually confirmed that he was its founder in September of 2022. He stated that he found it, founded it in May 2014 to support Russian forces in the war in the Donbass. And now the interesting thing to me here is, and it's just my theory, is that why do you think all of a sudden he wants people to know that he is involved with this stuff? Because look, he has denied founding the Wagner Group. He has denied forming the internet research agency. He's denied all of these quasi shadow government affairs that he's been involved in. And part of me thinks the reason why all of a sudden he is letting the public and other nations be aware of what he's up to is because he has political aspirations. He wants people to know that he is running the shadow military in Ukraine. He wants people to know that he's been involved in election interference in the United States. And I think it's a message to the Russian elite and to summon the Kremlin that he is a high-profile figure and he wants us to know that he is, you know, kicking ass and taking names. Because there's a lot of big changes where he seems more emboldened to admit all of his wrongdoing. And that is somewhat troubling to me, and we'll get into why in a minute, but he's in this beef with Putin, his popularity's growing, and he's at a war of words with the defense ministry. That tells me that he's up to something. And anyways... The Wagner Group, too, I encourage you guys to listen to the podcast I did, oh, probably about a year ago. But the Wagner Group, you know, has kind of fascist, neo-Nazi-esque views and values. They've butchered a lot of innocent civilians. Not a good group by any means. And they basically just committed atrocities throughout Libya, Syria, and other parts of the Middle East. So before we get into this beef with Putin, though, and why there are thoughts that he might, may try to take power... I should also note that Prigozhin has been heavily involved in Africa and the, the Wagner Group as well. And there's a lot of influence there. I mean, maybe some of the propaganda he's spouting there is why we keep seeing a lot of African countries stay quiet about what's happening in Ukraine. Some worry, though, that he is practically exporting politics and propaganda in a box to Africa. Politics in a box. And I read an article in NPR that was this transcript of an interview between NPR and its correspondent, Charles Maines who works out of St. Petersburg. And basically in the interview, he discusses how he went to this new building called the Wagner Center in St. Petersburg, where it looks like they're trying to create some sort of business empire, growing media conglomerate, something like that. He says in the interview, in quotes, in a gritty industrial district of St. Petersburg, a new glass office tower rises. The words Wagner Center em emblazoned across its rooftop. It's a symbol of Wagner's growing business empire, and it turns out you can get a tour. And he just looks into how the company is not just a military group anymore. It's like a complete like shadow, quasi-parallel government apparatus or something. 
Anyways, it should be made clear as well that while the Wagner group, Wagner group, sorry, is influential in a lot of ways and has been a necessary piece of this war of aggression in Ukraine, the group does need to keep succeeding in Ukraine if it wants to remain popular. And if it does, or but if it does, it does seem like Prigozhin can exploit the failures of the de defense ministry and fill some sort of void. What I want to talk about here, though, is how there are reports and theories about how Putin and Prigozhin are no longer friends and that there could be forces in the background that want Prigozhin to lead Russia. Now, there's a guy, Jason J. Smart, and I want to go into his background just to add context so you guys know he's not just some, you know, theorist or speculator or whatever. He's a smart guy. I guess you could say smart is smart. And <laughs> he has a PhD. He's also a political advisor, foreign policy expert. He's lived and worked in Ukraine, Moldova, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, Russia, throughout Latin America. I saw he speaks like Russian, Ukrainian, Spanish, English, something else maybe. So not, not a dumb guy by any means. And according to the Kiev Post, which he writes for, due to his work with the opposition to Vladimir Putin, Smart was a persona non grata for life by Russia in 2020. <laughs> and despite his collaboration with the Russian opposition, he continues to this day. And he worked in U.S. politics. He was also on the presidential campaign of Senator John McCain. He founded an NGO for Free Ukraine in 2015. And he was the former director of the security service for Ukraine. So not, a, not an idiot by any means. And the reason why I'm starting with this is because he has an interesting article in the Kiev Post, and he does an interview with Newsweek, and he notes in quotes here, People have speculated that given the frayed relationship with Putin, Prigozhin may recognize the changing winds in Russia as being his own window of opportunity to move up the ladder to the top spot. And it, the article goes into how he's been in a beef with people like Russia's defense minister, Sergei Shogu, for years. And it talks about how his anger was stoked when the Kremlin took credit for some Russian victory in Solidar, which apparently the Wagner forces were heavily involved in. Smart has also told Newsweek that it seems like Prigozhin is being seen more and more as a power center in Russia. He notes here in quotes, History shows that sometimes leaders fall not because they've done something wrong in the eyes of their citizens, but simply because a young lion wishes to usurp the old Lion King. And Smart argues that Prigozhin could be that lion. And I read through the Kiev Post article and the interview in Newsweek, and there are some interesting insights into this theory. But of course, there's a myriad of challenges that Prigozhin could face if he actually wanted to replace Putin, which kind of sounds insane given, you know, how paranoid and delusional Putin's become. But that being said, first off here, hold on, let me write that down. Six, four... The first one here is that Putin has quite an authoritarian state, right? He's created an entire apparatus around him that's kept him in power for quite a while. And it's going to be difficult to just overthrow someone, right? But in this Kiev Post article, Smart writes in quotes here, In a situation where Prigozhin would seek to topple his benefactor, he would likely need to execute several other steps in rapid succession. And you guys probably know what that means, right? It means eliminating others who might want the power, others that might want to fill the power vacuum, all that type of stuff. And likely candidates for this would be Shogu, as I talked about earlier, or the Chechen leader Ramzan Kadrov. 
And Ramzan Kadrov is um, quite a character, atrocious guy, in my opinion. He has also criticized Putin's not like Putin's unwillingness to go further right now in the war in Ukraine. So he's another hardliner. And I actually think too, if some of these others were replaced or taken out or whatever, I think a lot of the others in the Kremlin would go along too. Like, of course, I can't read the minds of people inside the Kremlin, but it seems like the far right has a lot of influence in Russia and that Putin is under a lot of pressure to do more. I can't help but wonder what would happen if Putin were be to were to be deposed. I'm sure not everyone would be crying about it. And I guess if the Russian military keeps struggling, the Wagner group wins the propaganda game, it'd be a lot easier. Now, if we keep playing this scenario that Smart discusses out in our heads, Prigozhin would also need legitimacy, since he would be in power without elections, and he'd be violating the Constitution, which I'm surprised they still even care about that, based on some of the things I've been seeing. I Definitely, I'm not a Russian constitutional expert, but it would be unconstitutional for Prigozhin to just assume power, right? Because technically, like, Russia is sort of one of those hybrid autocratic states where there are elections, technically. Again, the next part of those Smarts articles, so talking about legitimacy, it's kind of troubling on how he thinks Prigozhin could get legitimacy. He writes one strategic route that Prigozhin could take. And it would be trying to secure power and secure backing from the West itself. Almost have the West make some sort of agreement with you. And Smart writes about how while the United States has said it's not backing regime change, Prigozhin could gain the White House's support by basically taking possession of Russia's nuclear arsenal. Which would be terrifying, by the way. Smart writes here in quotes, Having the nation's nukes in hand would allow Prigozhin to both fend off any entrenched elements in the Russian military, forcing those who had not yet taken sides to come on board, while at the same time giving him a chip with which he could negotiate with the West. And of course, this is all speculation, but it kind of makes sense if Prigozhin does want power, he would need some deal with some outside force, right? And I don't know what China's standing there would be, but you have to imagine that China would probably still black, I mean, kind of back Vladimir Putin. And he talks about how the West may go as far as demanding, for example, a total Russian withdrawal from Ukraine. And Smart actually says Prigozhin may actually agree to this as long as it means achieving his goal of running Russia, right? Like, okay, you lose Ukraine, but now you're the leader of Russia and Putin is out. I think that would be interesting. Now, that's the part I don't particularly agree with just because we know how hardline some of these people have been. But at the same time, if you want power, sometimes you're willing to do that. And then Smart writes here, having disposed of Putin, the new leader would need to move quickly to prevent someone from pushing him from power. And so Western support would be the key. Now, <laughs> I think this, put, this would put the United States and our allies in kind of a pretty difficult dilemma here because this would pretty much mean Russia's future, Russia's leadership, Russian people would be under a dangerous and atrocious human being. Also, would Zelensky accept this? Like, these are all, this is all kind of a thought experiment at this point. But I do think it's interesting that Smart wraps up some the interview with Newsweek. He says, in quotes, I think the most likely thing, above 90, 95% certainty, the most likely way this war ends is that Putin is replaced or that he dies, is killed, or is gone. And 
I mean, that's a pretty bold statement. Again, this guy is smart, but of course, you can never really predict the wheels of war once it's going. But the fact that this guy actually thinks that there's a certainty or a likelihood that Putin is replaced, what I will tell you guys, it would not be from someone on the left. It would be someone further right, like a Prichkovin. So if this isn't fascinating enough, the Carnegie Endowment for Democracy actually has a pretty interesting article that also expresses some thoughts on this potential change in leadership. The, art, the article's interesting because it actually doesn't think it's as likely as SMART does, but it also does provide us with some more theoretical insight into how this could happen and why Prigozhin, sorry, Prigozhin has a ability to do it, if anyone is. And apparently, like the article gives us a background of Prigozhin a little bit. Prior to the invasion of Ukraine, Prigozhin was never close enough to Putin, like he knew Putin, Putin knew him, but he wasn't really influential or in that inner circle. However, he found a way to operate in the shadows and kind of, like I said, create this parallel government apparatus that was successful, but without any accountability, I guess you could say. And the article writes in quotes here, the conflicts in both the Donbass and then Syria, plus Russia's standoff with the West meant that a market emerged for gray geopolitical tactics that unwieldy official institutions would struggle to deliver, right? Like it's hard for the, the Russian government to respond to some of these quasi conflicts. But what if you have a group like the Wagner Group or the Internet Research Agency be able to provide these services at a price and then Putin's government isn't held accountable for it? And Prigozhin started using informal tools of influence, right? Media mechanisms such as troll factories, mercenaries throughout Libya, Syria, and now Ukraine. And like I said, like the Carnegie Endowment for Democracy says, this enabled his organizations to operate out of sight and without, with, like, without being held accountable. And basically Putin has been able to outsource government programs and services, and it's kind of benefited both of them. And the article writes later in quotes, Prigozhin had hit the mother load. If the state was unable to effectively solve certain tasks or simply did not want to be seen doing some, these quasi-state tools could fill the gap. Putin liked this approach, which is also in demand in the war against Ukraine. And so that gets us to this point where the two have a relationship out of necessity. But I think what's changing here is that Prigozhin's tactics, like recruiting criminals and convicts to fight for the Wagner Group and the war being lost and the lack of resources and sanctions and everything has kind of put strains on their relationship. And as Prigozhin and others like Chechnya's leader have kind of put more pressure on Putin, the relationship is different. The thing here, though, is that this Carnegie Endowment for Democracy article is skeptical of Prigozhin's ability to like actually be the leader of Russia or get rid of Putin or anything like that. The article notes that he still has informal ties, for example, he still is really not in Putin's inner circle, and he has a lot of questionable ties with different groups that may come back to backfire on him. Also, his popularity back home is not as large as some have argued. I think he's more known amongst elite circles and on the far right, but he's not just like the most known guy. He's not like an Alexei Navalny or something. And apparently in polls that examine people's trust in politicians, he's barely mentioned. There's a Levada Center survey that was done at the end of 2022. And apparently just three people out of 1,600 that were polled actually knew him or named him. I think, I think that could be true. 
But if the Russian state keeps failing to deliver on promises abroad and internally, it allows Prigozhin to maintain legitimacy and maybe seek that window of opportunity to do something. Also, he is very good at propaganda, and he has a lot of allies on the right. And I'll, I'll end this with this, is that the Carnegie Endowment has an interesting quote, and I think this kind of sums things up well. It says, war makes monsters out of men, and their recklessness and desperation can become a challenger to the state if it shows even the slightest sign of weakness. It'll be interesting to see, but... I think we, we will see some political infighting grow, especially if Russia keeps struggling and the war continues. And the last thing I'll just say is I think that's why even with all the lies and the GOP criticisms of continuing to fund the war, I think that's why this war is so important to keep helping Ukraine because we want there to be internal issues in Russia. We want Putin gone. I don't know if we want Prigozhin, but we do want change and we need to keep sticking with Ukraine. So anyways... Not the happiest of topics, but I hope your Monday goes well. I hope it's warmer wherever you are. If I have any listeners in a warm, beachy type of place, let me know. But anyways, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean. I don't know. Whatever else there is out there. Have a great rest of your day. Adios.